Well, again, it is good to see you this morning as we come together to worship Jesus Christ, and we now transition to our time in the Word, and we're going to look at the book of Genesis chapter 41. This is now the fourth week where we're going to be going through this series that I entitled, From a Pit to a Palace. From a Pit to a Palace, we're looking at the life and the ministry and the influence and the catapulting of Joseph uh, in his life to a place where God would have him to accomplish all of his good pleasure. And we find here in the first section of chapter 41 a critical juncture in Joseph's life when he is, again, providentially transitioned from this pit to a palace, from a place of great humiliation to exaltation. And in my humble estimation, there is not another situation or example of such a profound exaltation from a place of humiliation like we see on the pages of Scripture today. Not throughout the eons of human history can they be found or discovered. Oh, sure, we can look in history and find examples of where leaders of revolutions or insurrections who are hunted fugitives by the controlling government eventually topple the controlling government and are then vaulted to the position of dictator or leader or president or ruler. But never... Has there been someone who was not seeking this leadership position, who was not jockeying for position, been elevated from a slave status in prison to being prime minister of not just a little third world country in Central America, but the superpower of the known world, the leader of the known world? But this is exactly what happens to Joseph. And this explosion onto the scene of world leadership we see it in our focal text this morning. In the morning of this day, Joseph is languishing in a cold, dark dungeon. By the end of the day, again, he's the prime minister of the superpower. He's given complete oversight of the policies and practices of this nation. It's an unparalleled change in station so far, so fast. Now, we understand as believers in Jesus and believers in his word, that all positions of leadership, all kings, all rulers, all authorities only have their positions of authority by God's sovereign decree. And this truth is repeated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Let me just show you a couple of examples. In the book of Jeremiah, we find the word of the Lord coming through Jeremiah, and he begins to refer to the pagan, idolatrous, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to see particularly how God describes Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 25, verse 8. The Bible says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Did you notice how God referred to this pagan, idolatrous king, Nebuchadnezzar? He said, he's my servant. He would be God's servant to bring judgment upon the rebellious house of Israel and the surrounding nations as well. In the New Testament, the apostle Paul illuminates this truth in this way in chapter 13 of the book of Romans. He said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur justice. And you may even remember what Jesus said to the governor of Judea, Pilate, face to face. He said, Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted you from above. So whether it's the Roman Empire, whether it's Babylon, whether it's the United States of America, whether it's whatever ruler in all of human history, they would not have that status and that position unless God had given them that position. And friends, this should particularly give us comfort 23 days from a presidential election. Friends, no matter who's elected, no matter who takes the position in the White House, God is still on his throne. God is still ruling and governing the affairs of man. But again, in my opinion, there's not a greater example of God's sovereignty and his providence in raising up a leader from humiliation to exaltation like we see in the passage today. So we're going to read the bulk of chapter 41. We're going to read verses 1 through 16, then skip a few verses where Pharaoh retells his dreams to Joseph, and then we'll read from verse 25 through verse 37. So look with me in your Bibles or on the screen as I read it. Uh, This is God's word. Let's listen to it. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blight, by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief cupbearer in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now look down at verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. 
But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. As we've observed throughout the series on Joseph, Joseph is in fact a a type of Christ. He's pointing forward to the greater Joseph, to Jesus, 1,700 years later, who would come on the scene in a remarkable way. And even as remarkable as Joseph's story is, it is nothing compared to the remarkable story of Jesus. You see, because Jesus, this 33-year-old man who was hung on a cross to die in an excruciating way, was not put in a cold, dark prison, but in a cold, damp, dark grave. And he would go from that humiliating status to a status of exaltation where he would, by the power of God, be resurrected from the dead and then be elevated to the very right hand of God on high. Well, he would not be the prime minister of Egypt, but the prime minister over all creation. And so, Lord willing, next week we'll see in greater detail in Joseph's life the position Joseph obtains by the hand of the Lord. But this morning I want us to examine the process God used to get him there. And there are really three thoughts I want us to see from this passage this morning. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to consider the perplexity of the king. The perplexity of the king. Again, the king has two troubling, perplexing dreams. And we can see the, his perplexity particularly described again in verse 8. Look at it again. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now I want you to think again and be reminded about who the inspired author of the book of Genesis is. It's Moses. And I want you to remember, some 400 years after these events surrounding Joseph, Moses is put by his mother in a ark of sorts into the Nile River, in the bulrushes, and he floats down. And of all people, what are the chances? Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, little baby Moses, floating in the river. She brings him in. And for 40 years, Moses has his position in the royal palace. He is raised in the lap of luxury, in royalty. He knows Egyptian customs. He knows Egyptian religion and belief systems. And Moses is writing this, and I think understanding that context might help us to see that I think Moses is a little amused at this situation. He's amused at what's going on here. As I told you last week, Egypt considered Pharaoh to be a god. He was the god over the Egyptians. And so what's amusing to Moses? Well, a couple of things. This God, supposed God of Egypt, doesn't have a clue what's going on. This God over Egypt has no understanding of what the dreams mean. He's in a total state of confusion. He doesn't possess the divine quality of omniscience. And secondly, the fact that this so-called God needs magicians, 
needs wise men to come and help him? I think this is quite amusing to Moses. And so Moses is putting before you, putting before us, and putting before the people of Israel to whom he was writing this comparison and contrast. I just read Isaiah 40. To whom will you compare God? He's putting forward this comparison and contrast. Here's the God of Egypt. He didn't have a clue what's going on. He has no understanding of divine things. He needs all these assistants to help him out. He's highlighting the weakness of the gods of this world. And in contrast, he is showing forth greatly the power of the God of Joseph, Yahweh, the one true God, the God who knows and reveals the future. And friends, how relevant is this to our day today? The God of the Bible versus the gods of this world. You see, there's all kinds of wise men out there. There's all kinds of prognosticators and pollsters who put forward their imaginings of what's going to be coming around the next corner, whether that's economically or politically, even sports prognosticators, uh, weather prognosticators. A week ago, this was going to be a clear Sunday. There's all these people who say, you know, this is what we think is going to happen, but only, only the one true God knows. And so like Moses, Moses who wrote this book, and like Joseph who is before Pharaoh as servants of the one true God, friends, we can be unflinching in our confidence in God. We can be unmoved in our dependence on his providential care. So in seasons of uncertainty in the world, we do not walk in fear. We do not walk in worry. We're not consumed by the headlines because we serve the God who oversees all the happenings of the world. We sang the song when we were little children. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister. He's got the whole world in his hands. But again, here is Pharaoh, the absolute ruler of the age who is at the peak of his earthly human power. He has at his disposal all the vast resources of Egypt. He has the material resources, the military resources, and even the supposed magical resources at his disposal. And all it takes is a couple of dreams in the middle of the night to throw this autocratic tyrant into a complete frenzy of confusion. Why? I mean, I've had troubling dreams before, haven't you? There's been occasion, I didn't clear this with my wife to tell you this, but I'm going to go and tell you anyway, and I'll forgive forgiveness later. There's been occasions, my wife has had dreams about me where I did particularly heinous things in the dream, and it's taken an hour or so before she forgives me. I was like, it was just a dream, I didn't really do it. I don't know if you other men can relate to this experience, but this is so much deeper than that. This is more than just a nightmare. This is just more than a troubling dream, which is why Pharaoh goes on this all-out search for someone to provide answers. Again, he asks for all the magicians, all the wise men. He's got to get an answer. Because even as we saw last week, the baker's dream and the cupbearer's dreams, they were given by God. There's a reason he's so disturbed. These dreams were not your normal everyday dream. They were given by God. So just what was so troubling about these dreams to Pharaoh? Well, in his first dream, he has this vision of something that would have been very familiar to him and very familiar to Moses, who was writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit. That is, he saw these seven cows, looking at verse 2. Behold, there came up out of the Nile 
seven cows attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. So here's what cattle would do in Egypt. To escape the heat and to escape insects, they, cows would wade out into the Nile River, and they'd turn around and come up to the, to the edge of the river, and they'd feed on the lush marsh grass of the Nile River. So this is something that's very similar or familiar to them in that day. Further, the cow served as something of a symbol or really an icon for their goddess of the earth named Isis. And so this would have been particularly poignant to Pharaoh. Then in the second dream, Pharaoh sees these ears of corn. Curiously, there's seven ears on one stalk. Now, I don't know if you know anything about corn or grain. Typically, a one stalk of corn only produces one ear of corn. Maybe genetically modified stuff in our day might produce two ears of corn. So this is a very productive stalk. It has seven ears of corn. Well, so far, so good on these dreams. And then they both take a troubling turn. The seven healthy, attractive cows who are grazing along the Nile River, they're suddenly overtaken and eaten and consumed by these seven skinny, gaunt cows. And in fact, when Pharaoh retells the dreams to Joseph, we didn't read this section, but look at verse 21. He includes an element he didn't include in the first telling. He says in verse 21, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. These nasty-looking, skinny, you ever seen a really skinny, bone, gaunt cow? Well, they eat these massive cows. They're still skinny. They're still ugly. And in a similar way, in the second dream, there arises on this stalk of corn seven more ears, but these are ugly, putrid stalks of corn, and they turn into cannibalistic corn. They consume the other seven ears. And again, Pharaoh is totally discombobulated and disturbed by these two very strange dreams. And none of the magicians, none of the wise men, I find it curious, they didn't even offer any ideas. They didn't even come up with any kind of theory. But why was it? Well, I think God is specifically confusing their minds because he's about, about to advance his purposes through Joseph. God was planning all along to catapult him onto the scene. And so then it's at this critical juncture when Pharaoh is absolutely beside himself in an all-out panic, anguish, frantic over his dreams, we see the second thing, number two, the pronouncement of the butler. The pronouncement of the butler. Friends, it would not have been good to be a high official in Pharaoh's court when he's in this situation. <laughs> everybody is on edge. Everybody is walking on pins and needles. They don't want to say anything or do anything that's going to, you know, topsy-turvy this whole experience and situation. So the cupbearer or the butler, as I've referred to him here, and the King James refers to him as the butler, was certainly no exception. He was very close to the king as a high-ranking official, and suddenly, almost miraculously, the cupbearer we saw last week who had forgotten about jo Joseph is suddenly cured of his two-year amnesia. <laughs> he remembers Joseph. And in the midst of the crisis, everyone running to and fro, trying to come up with something, but nobody has an answer. I just imagine the cupbearer just kind of sheepishly raising his hand. Uh, Pharaoh, I hate to bring this up, you know, at this time. You may remember you threw me and the baker in prison not long ago. Well, here's the thing. While we were there, there was somebody who came to us. We both had very disturbing dreams. We didn't know the source of those dreams. They troubled us. There was somebody there. In fact, look at verse 12, what he says about Joseph. He says, a young Hebrew was there 
with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. Pharaoh, he was able to interpret our dream with such detailed accuracy that what he said was going to happen to the baker did in fact happen to the baker. You hung him on a tree, decapitated him, and he was eaten by ravens. And what you said was going to happen to me, you elevated me back to my office by your right hand. What we see here in the course of events is in Joseph's life. From the pit to being purchased as a piece of property to being sold into Potiphar's house, serving there diligently for 10 years until finally he's falsely accused and thrown into prison for two years, forgotten by this butler. He's nobody in the hierarchy of Egypt. He's less than a nobody. He's a Hebrew slave imprisoned. What an astounding chain of events that occur here. Now, the cupbearer did do some selective editing in his retelling of the story. For one, he said that Joseph interpreted the dreams. When Joseph made it clear, interpretation belongs to God. Second thing he did was he left out the part where he was asked to remember him and he conveniently forgot him. Nevertheless, the the outcome of the cupbearer's pronouncements brings about this bustling of activity. As soon as he said this, look again at verse 14 and note particularly all the verbs in verse 14, which denote action for us. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. There's a lot of action happening here in just this one verse. Now, Hebrew men were known to have beards. Egyptian men, on the other hand, were known to be clean-shaven, even shaving their heads. And so here is Young Joseph, he's in the prison. He's shaved. He no doubt stunk to high heaven. He's cleaned and bathed. He's sanitized and Egyptianized. And he's brought before Pharaoh in the palace of all of Egypt. Amazingly, he's standing before the ruler of the world. And if you'll remember in previous passages, we noted that the Bible says that Joseph was handsome in form, he had a nice body and appearance. He was good looking. And so here he is, shaved, cleaned, dressed to the nines, the prototypical male Egyptian. But Joseph is not standing there all alone. As we've seen throughout Joseph's life, he was never alone. God was with him. When his jealous brothers threw him in the pit, friends, God was with him there. When he was sold to the traveling Ishmaelites, he was with him there. When he was in Potiphar's house for 10 years, we saw this incredible relation in that chapter of God was with Joseph. Then he's languishing, forgotten in prison for two years. God is with him there. And now here, in front of Pharaoh, God is with Joseph. Throughout the years, God has been developing Joseph. God has been working in Joseph. How else could you explain this third and final reality I want us to consider? Number three, the proclamation of the prisoner. The proclamation of the prisoner. Joseph is now 30 years old. Interestingly, the exact same age Jesus was when he began his ministry of redemption and rescue. 
Jesus had 30 years of preparation for his ministry. Joseph has 30 years of preparation. Again, God has shown himself faithful to Joseph in the good times, in the bad times, in the ups and the downs. He's been developing Joseph's spiritual muscles for this particular battle and wrestling match that is right now before him. What Joseph has learned to do is this. Listen, he's learned to lean on himself less and less, and he's learned to lean on God more and more. See, and this is a mark of spiritual maturity. This is a mark of growing in grace, that we are leaning less and less on our own abilities, our own know-how, our own intellect, our own experiences, and we are leaning more and more and more on God. God has brought him through all the ordeals of his experiences for this moment right here. Now, as Joseph is finally remembered by the butler, he's ready, and I want us to consider his proclamation to Joseph, particularly four things I want to point out that Joseph communicated that are incredibly instructive for us as well as we are seeking to be mature believers, leaning on God and not leaning on our own understanding. First of all, I want us to see that Joseph is radically God-centered. Joseph is radically God-centered. And it's so obvious in his exchange with Pharaoh just how God-centered he is because Pharaoh dangles before Joseph this temptation that is one of the most enticing temptations known to man, the temptation of self-advancement, the temptation of self-aggrandizement. Notice again what Pharaoh said at the end of verse 15. He says, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. You, you, you. Joseph, you are the man. This is your hour. This is your opportunity to advance your capacity, your position, your occupation. I've heard it said of you, Joseph. But notice how Joseph responds immediately in the next verse. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In English, that's five words. It is not in me. In Hebrew, it's just one word, not me. This is not an immature believer. Friends, if you find yourself in the midst of difficulty or loss or hardship, confusing circumstances, and if you're wondering, God, what are you doing here? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's doing the same thing he did in the life of Joseph. It is a holy maturation process to prepare you for the appointed hour when you'll be called to give testimony of the greatness of your God. From the pit to Potiphar's house and now from prison to the palace, God has been preparing Joseph so that at just the right time, he would have maximum impact for the kingdom of God. You see, Joseph is in a position to point all the power brokers of the lone superpower to God. What an opportunity. It is not in me. Friends, never in the courts of Egypt had that kind of sentence ever been uttered. When you finally arrive to the court of Pharaoh, you want to make sure there's self-promotion. You want to make sure there's self-assertion, that you're looking for self-advancement, whatever you can do to raise your status in the eyes of the king. Why? Because you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And Joseph says, I want my first impression of Pharaoh to be 
an impression about the greatness of my God. We have so much to learn from Joseph. He is radically God-centered in his approach to life. But secondly, in his response, we see he is reflectively listening. When Joseph comes before Pharaoh, again, he doesn't bring his resume, and he doesn't try to impress with a multitude of words. He just simply says, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In other words, I'm not here to talk. I'm not here to puff myself up. I'm here to listen. How much maturity does that take to just say, I'm here to listen? Joseph never interrupts Pharaoh. He never even asks, can you clarify this a little bit? He's just reflectively listening. You know, most people, when we engage in conversation, and I say we, as someone else is talking, in our mind, we're thinking about what I'm going to say about myself after they get done talking about themselves. And then when I get done talking about myself, well, they've been thinking this whole time, well, how can I one-up that? And I'm going to tell you about myself. This is conversation, not Joseph. He's not trying to promote himself or think about how he can, can show himself as being great or insightful. He's learned how to truly listen, which means, friends, he's learned how to truly care. As we mature, we will learn to listen, to listen to God and to listen to man. But the third thing we learn from Joseph here is that, see, he is ruthlessly honest. <laughs> the truth, no matter the situation, is always the best answer. Of course, Joseph has remarkable insight from the Lord. In fact, it is supernatural insight into this situation. So he describes to Pharaoh how the seven healthy cows and the seven good ears of corn are one and the same. They represent seven years of plenty, of growth. And then the seven lean years and the seven, I mean, the seven uh, lean cows and the seven ugly ears of corn, they represent seven years of famine, of drought that are going to be so bad, they're going to consume all the production of the seven good years. Now, when you hear Joseph interpret these two dreams, the interpretations are so simple and so straightforward, I almost asked, couldn't any of these wise men in Egypt figure this out? I mean, this is pretty straightforward. Yeah, this is obviously what this means. But again, I think God was confusing them. But the other thing is this, somebody that has developed spiritually, a mark of maturity is someone who is able to take perhaps deep truths and explain them in a very simple way. And that's what Joseph does here. These are some deep realities that God has enlightened him to, and he's able to insightfully communicate them in a very plain spoken way in the midst of what even is a tumultuous situation. How, how is he able to do that? How can we be able to do that? In a word, humility. Humility. Notice what the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth in chapter 3 of his first epistle. He said, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. You see, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want to be one who can speak truth into a situation plainly and forthrightly, Humble yourself before God. Don't look to yourself, but look to God and to his word. And that's really the crucial component for us is that we're saturated in the word. Time and time again, I've seen in my own life, people that have this capacity 
to speak with such clear and compassionate honesty in the midst of a difficult situation are people I know are saturated with the Word of God. And it's from this position of being word-saturated that we can experience this next thing we see Joseph. Fourthly, he is rationally instructive. Now, as soon as Joseph reveals the meaning of the dream, he doesn't skip a beat. He immediately goes into this uh, rational instruction based on the ruthless truthfulness of the interpretation. He instructs clearly. He instructs persuasively from verse 25 all the way through verse 36. What's he doing here? He's presenting to Pharaoh a plan. It's really an action plan. It's a business model of sorts. There's four parts of his plan. Let me review them for you. First of all, he says, Pharaoh, you need to appoint someone who's going to deal with this crisis of the famine, this emergency. Maybe you call him a famine czar. I don't know. But you need to appoint somebody who's your point person in this whole situation for these 14 years. Secondly, what you need to do is you need to appoint these vice commissioners or these overseers in all the different localities of Egypt where grain is grown, where grain is produced, so they can oversee locally the larger plan. Third, what you need to do is you need to implement for the seven years of plenty a 20% tax on all the grain that's produced. I know that's exorbitant tax, but you implement a 20% tax over these seven years. And fourthly, what you need to do, you need to build some large storage houses. You need to build some silos so that you can store all this grain for the time of famine that's going to exist. Joseph has the whole plan worked out in his mind. Now, I don't personally believe he's jockeying for position here. I don't think he's presenting himself as, an oh, by the way, Pharaoh, I can be that guy. He doesn't say that anywhere. He's just, think about it. First of all, he's got the presence of God upon him. But secondly, think about his experience. When he was the next to the youngest brother of all of his brothers, his father gave him the coat of royalty, put him in charge of his entire enterprise. So he was managing the entire enterprise of the patriarch Jacob. Well, after he's thrown into the pit and going into Potiphar's house, what happens there? He shows himself incredibly gifted and competent almost immediately, and for 10 years, He's managing the chief of police affairs. The only thing the chief of police worried about was what he was having for supper. Literally, that's what the text says. So then he's thrown into prison. Immediately, the jailer recognizes this guy is special. And so he puts him in charge of the entire prison. He's over all the prisoners. Then when the cupbearer and the baker are thrown into prison, the, the pharaoh, he says, hey, Potiphar, I'm putting these two guys in your charge. And Potiphar says, oh, how can I best manage them? I know, I'll give them to Joseph. Joseph, you're now in charge of two, these two guys. For the better part of 20 years, Joseph has been managing systems, processes, and people. He's incredibly experienced, and he takes the Spirit of God illumining him and his experience as a manager, and even as he's hearing the dream, he puts together this plan that is brilliant. And think about it. This is a Hebrew slave who was in prison, who now has just put forward a plan to completely revolutionize the entire Egyptian economy, government, and system. Only God. Only God could do that. Now, throughout this series, I've pointed to the fact that Joseph is, in fact, a type of Christ. And I've pointed out the distinct parallels between Joseph and Jesus, who will come 1,700 years later on on the scene. And I want us to consider particularly the four elements we just saw in Joseph, how we see those emulated in Jesus Christ as well. First of all, Jesus was also radically God-centered. 
radically God-centered. He said in John 5 that I only do what I see the Father doing. There's nothing I do that I don't see the Father doing. Even whenever he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, anguishing so much that he was sweating great drops of blood, what did he say? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was God-centered. Further, Jesus was a reflective listener. Think about his encounter with the woman at the well. How he was able to, with his compassion and kindness, draw out of her things that she would have never revealed. Or even after his resurrection, as he's walking on the road to Emmaus with these two dejected, depressed disciples, and through his compassion and kindness, he's able to draw out of them what they're experiencing. He was a reflective listener. Thirdly, Jesus, of course, was ruthlessly honest. He spoke the truth with clarity, yet compassion, with simplicity, yet authority. And of course, Jesus was rationally instructive, so much so that whenever the Pharisees sent the temple police to go and arrest Jesus, they came back to the Pharisees without Jesus. They were like, what's the deal, guys? We told you to go arrest him. What did they say? No one has ever spoken like this man. With every sermon, every parable, Jesus spoke and taught and instructed like no one has ever done. And here's the thing, Christian. You can have these gifts too. You can be radically God-centered. You can be ruthlessly honest. You can become a reflective listener. You can give instructive that is so rational and to the point and wise. How? You see, Jesus has a reservoir of these gifts that he is willing to give to us. He will not hold them from us. But as James 1, 5 says, if any of us lack wisdom, let us ask of him. He'll give it to us liberally. We should believe and not doubt. Now, as we move towards a conclusion this morning, I want to point out something that I mentioned last week uh, that we saw there, but it's here in this text in an even greater and more profound way. It's simply this. Joseph's absolute confidence in the sovereignty and the providence of God does not prevent him from action. He knew, God revealed, that the baker was going to die and the cupbearer was going to be elevated back to his position. And so he acted in his trust of the providence of God. Remember me, cupbearer, when you get back to your position. He acted on behalf of the information he had. Well, we see it here in an even much more profound way as he demonstrates his total confidence in the sovereignty of God that he knows without a doubt there's going to be seven plentiful great years of produce among the grain growers of Egypt. And he also knows it's going to be followed by seven years of famine and drought. Well, he doesn't just sit back and say, okay, well, let's just let it happen. That's what the plan of God is. Okay, I'll just watch it happen. No, he has this great plan. He puts a plan in action. And I want you to pause and think about this for a moment. Do you see the conjunction here of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? Through the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this consistent pattern. God is providentially sovereign over everything, yet we are humanly responsible to respond to his revelation. That's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Friends, if God has revealed he's bringing judgment on the world. We just sit back and watch it happen? No, we respond in action. 
If God is revealed, there's going to be a time of, of difficulty. We respond in accordance to that. Yes. We could apply this in many areas in our lives, but I think particularly as a church, I want us to think about how this applies to missions. We just completed a four-week study in our small groups on missions, Missions 101. Has God given us a revelation about missions, about what he's going to accomplish sovereignly, providentially, what he will do and it's going to happen? Of course he has. Notice the revelation in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9. After this, John says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God's revelation to Joseph that there would be famine makes him respond with a specific plan of action. And the revelation of God to look out Valley Baptist Church that he will bring from every nation, every tongue, every ethnic group around the throne doesn't make us sit back and say, okay, God, do it. It makes us put a plan in action. So we think about how we send missionaries, how we can leverage our resources, our homes, our bank accounts, our businesses, our occupations, leverage them to the furthest we can so that we can see the task completed. This is the gospel call. But God's revelation in Jesus is the greatest revelation. That God has revealed himself in his one and only son. God's revelation always requires response. And I wonder, have you responded to God's revelation of himself? Have you responded to the fact that God sent his one and only son, Jesus? That in the sending of his son, Jesus, to be the Savior, that here is Jesus. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Listen, he is the image of God, the perfect display of God. Jesus came, and every temptation you've experienced, every trial you've gone through, every weakness that you've walked in, Jesus has walked in it, yet he never sinned. And in that sinless perfection of Jesus, he alone had the capacity to be the saving sacrifice. He alone has the capacity to be the substitutionary, punishment-taking, wrath-avenging sacrifice for you and for me and for the deep guilt of all of our sin. That's the revelation of Jesus. Have you responded to that revelation? What's the appropriate response to Jesus and his work? Jesus told us exactly what the response is. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the only appropriate response to the revelation of Jesus as Savior. Repent. That means to turn, to change your mind, change your life, and change your allegiance to your own rule and reign. And turn and surrender to the, the rule of Jesus. And not only do you, you repent, but you believe in the gospel. You trust in, you cling up to, you rely upon the good news that Christ has come to take your place, that he was 
crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended. He's been elevated to the right hand of God on high. And he is coming again. If you have not responded to this good news, today is the day to respond. Now is the appropriate time. And that leads to my last thought. God's revelation of his providential plan compels us in a response of action. 